Let me invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We looked tonight at verses 3 through 14. We started a study on the letter of Ephesians just last week. Paul introduced himself as an apostle speaking from Jesus with a sure word about Jesus to the saints who are in Christ. He tells us Christians have a new identity in Christ, and he prayed that they would know grace and peace. And now tonight we turn to verses 3 through 14, our first look at this passage. I say that because there's more here than we could possibly cover in one evening. And uh, we do intend to look closely at verse 3 and then take a bird's eye view of the rest of the passage. That will become clear why in a moment. I want to say this even before we read the passage, though. There are ideas found here which may surprise some of you. There are words here that um, have uh, been the source of great misunderstanding amongst Christians, even points of debate and disagreement between Christians. This is the kind of passage college students would stay up late till 3 in the morning batting about and talking about what does it mean, what do you believe about it. This is the kind of passage where people might get up at a new church plant and walk out and never come back the next week. So uh, I I just say that to say um, we're going to punt all those issues tonight, I think, generally speaking. For the coming weeks, we're going to come back to this passage in more detail. So don't let it throw you that there's things in here that you may scratch your head and say, now what did Paul say and what does that mean? And if, if it means that, then it means that and that and what in the world and Listen, it doesn't mean half of that and that that you think it means, but um, I do want you to see that Paul's primary purpose in verses 3 through 14 is actually praise. He's actually speaking to God and only in a sense secondarily to the Ephesians and to us. His primary point is not to teach us, though of course we learn a bunch, but it's actually to take all that he's saying and to praise the Lord with it and for it. And so our subject tonight is praise. Before again we read the text, I want to say one other thing. With the opening of the college football season yesterday, (laughs) did you see anything to cheer about? If you're a fan of the game, I know that some of you aren't, and I realize that. Did you get excited? Did you find yourself saying, yes, that's awesome, Did you see that? Praise flows from something admirable, something in which you take delight if you have a heart for it. Others of you ever turned the TV on and could care less, I realize. Now listen, the Apostle Paul is praising the Lord and he wants you to see what he's praising the Lord for, something admirable and he has a heart for it. But listen, if if you don't see that, then there's something significantly wrong either with what you believe because you don't believe God is praiseworthy or something significantly wrong with the heart. You're not that interested or you got distracted or you're not certain about what it is you're seeing or whatever the case. Because Paul says there's something praiseworthy here and I want you to see why God is praiseworthy. So he bursts forth here and then I want to say one final thing. If you're here tonight... And you're not a Christian. We're delighted that you're here. We're glad that you're here. We'd like to dialogue about these things with you. I want you to consider tonight why God is praiseworthy. And if you're a Christian, you need to see this. God blesses, Paul blesses God for 
blessing us with every spiritual blessing. Paul blesses God for blessing us with every spiritual blessing. Let me invite you to turn your attention to Ephesians chapter 1 and hear the reading of the word of God beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade because the breath of the Lord blows on them. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of God stands forever. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Oh, Father, teach us your word. I pray that you would enlighten our eyes, that we would know the hope to which you have called us, that we would know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and that we would know something of the power that is at work in us, that power which raised Jesus from the dead and united us to him. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is a God-intoxicated Man, as others have said. You can almost imagine Paul taking one great big breath as he then rattles off all of this to some scribe who's jotting it down. I say that because it's actually one verse. It's one long sentence in Greek. 202 words. Your English translators have broken it up into various sentences to try to make sense of it for us, I think, in a helpful way. But it's almost like Paul just, just sucked in as much air as he could, and then he praised the Lord for all of this. Praise is life reorienting. It reminds us who is most important in life. Who is that? God. Christians desperately need to be reminded of that. I'm not talking about non-Christians need to be told that. Christians need to be reminded of it because we forget this all the time. 
That's why the first principle of theology, as one of my professors put it in seminary, was the first principle is this, there is God, and the second principle is this, you're not him. (laughs) Paul is praising the Lord here, and he begins with the doxology, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want you to think about four or five things about his prayer of praise tonight, just covering it. In a large scope, Christian praise is Trinitarian. I I realize that's awfully theological right off the bat, but there it is. We praise the God, Paul says, who is one God in three persons. You see that very clearly unfolded as you read through the passage. If you just scan through again, verses 3 through 6, he talks about God the Father blessing us with all these blessings. And he comes to the end of it in verse 6 and he says, he says it's to the praise of his glory. Then, it, then he turns to this one he calls the Beloved, capital B, Beloved, which is Jesus Christ. In verses 7 through 12, he talks about all the good things that the Son of God has done and how he will be exalted. And at verse 12, he winds it all up with this to the praise of his glory. And then verses 13 and 14, he celebrates not just the Father and the Son, but he celebrates the Holy Spirit who is given to guarantee our inheritance, he says. And he sums that up again, verse 14, with another, to the praise of his glory. You see what he's done there. He's unfolded for us something of the doctrine of the Trinity. He speaks about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have to say something about that. What he seems to be doing is, is this. He's saying, Uh, The administration of redemption is by the Father. And the accomplishment of redemption is by the Son. And the application to us of redemption is by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he speaks of the Father who planned our redemption, the Son who procured it, and the Spirit who applies it to all who believe. Paul seems to be saying this, that apart from the Trinity, the gospel would be impossible. The way that it works uh, can only be administered by one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, uh, that's all very theological, I realize, but it's important. We were, uh, as a family, down at the beach in May, and this was actually in May a year ago as well. And uh, we were staying in this, um, this conference center full of bunk beds. And my daughter, who was eight at the time, was noticing all the graffiti written all over the underside of the bunks, you know, the wood platforms. And she came back one night at dinner and she said, I read this. Somebody wrote, I love gods on the bunk bed. And I, being the very godly Christian pastor and father that I am, I just tried to, you know, slough it off and say, oh, isn't that silly? And my five-year-old son, as serious as he's ever been in his life, said, well, actually, it's not funny. (laughs) Well, actually, Ben, you're right. We had a little discussion about do we say things that are true about God or not? The Apostle Paul here is, is reminding you that God is one God, but God in three persons. The, the, the famous Augustine once said about the doctrine of the Trinity that we speak in order not to remain silent. In other words, we have to say something about who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how all that works together because to say nothing would be to allow, I mean, rampant, non-biblical, 
ideas to take shape and form in the minds of people. You have to say something, even though it's a great mystery, and even though there's very little that you can say that you know for sure, what you can say you must say. And, and it's this, there's only one God, but there is more than one who is that one God. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and yet the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And you've got your mind wrapped around that, come talk to me. I'd like to know how you did that. Three in one, and one in three, and yet the Bible, we're saying, makes this absolutely clear. Deuteronomy 6, uh, the Jews constantly heard, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. And God constantly defined himself against all the gods that existed. And there's just one. And yet, here in the New Testament, clearly, Jesus is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. So it's absolutely vital to understand. It's actually helpful to understand Just before we move on, it's helpful because you you realize this then. That before there was a world to make and people to love, the Father was loving the Son. And the Son was loving the Spirit. And the Spirit was loving the Father. There was an eternal fellowship of love. And so John can say, God is love. And you don't have to pity a deity who was so lonely all by himself that he had to make creatures. To be loved by. Because that wasn't the case at all. God has always loved. And always enjoyed. Being loved. And the extraordinary thing that the Bible says is this. That God out of the great freeness of his generosity created you. To enjoy the experience of love. To share in the joy of that love. And this is who we worship, friends. This is who we praise. The Trinitarian God of love. That's the first point. The second is this. Christian praise flows out of gratitude. See what he says here in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. And who are the us? The us he defines for you in chapter 2 and other places. He says, well, the us is those who were by nature dead in trespasses in sins. There was no life in us. There was no health in us. We didn't deserve the least of God's mercies, he says. Our wills were bound to walk in the ways of the world and in defiance of God. And these are the ones he blessed. He came to us in the depths of our sin and he spoke a word of grace. How much has he blessed us? Notice the text. How much? Every blessing it says every spiritual blessing verse three there is this is not every spiritual blessing friends that you can think of this is every spiritual blessing that god thought of he's not sparing here he's not miserly he's very open-handed and liberal and generous it isn't that some here are blessed more than others he's not saying well some of you christians are super christians And you've got more of this blessing than others do know you, he says, saints in Christ, have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. All of us, with every. So I would say to you, do you know who you are? You are already rich, the Bible says. You are already the most blessed person who has ever lived. I know you don't believe that about yourself. 
But the Bible is saying to you, you are already the most blessed person who has ever lived. You are already a co-heir with Christ of all things. You are already one to whom everything belongs because you belong to Jesus and it's all his. That's what the Bible is saying to you. I know you don't feel that way. I understand that. I know Christians don't live this way. I get that. I don't live this way. I know we're all frustrated with Christians who don't live like this is true. And we look at Christians and we say, is this all there is? I feel that. I understand that because that's me too. But Paul says this is true of you. Actually in chapter 1 verse 15, and we're not there yet, he's actually going to pray that we would understand and know and experience these blessings and the riches of them. That's what he's going to pray because you need to grow in your experience of these. But he has blessed us with every blessing. And what kind of blessings are they, friends? They are spiritual blessings. That's his language here. They they are blessings of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about you're blessed because you're driving around in a good ride. He's not talking about you're blessed because you've got air conditioning working in your home in this weather. You're blessed. That's great. That's not what he's talking about here at all. He's talking about blessings of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes what belongs to Christ and he makes it belong to us. And we get all of them. And what are they? We're not going to talk through them, but what are they? Scan your eyes down the list. Verse 4, you are chosen in holiness. You are predestined to adoption, verse 5. Verse 7, you are redeemed at the cost of the death of Christ. You are, verse 7, forgiven of your sins. You are, verses 7 and 8, lavished with grace. You are, verses 9 and 10, you are given to understand God's purposes in world history. You are, verse 13, sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are, verse 14, you have an inheritance by that same Spirit. You see what he's saying? You've got all of this, whatever those things mean. They're all yours already. And the realm of these blessings is in heavenly places. And we won't discuss that at great length. But this is an expression peculiar to this book. He uses it four or five other times in the book to talk about basically the, the, the realm of the unseen spiritual realities. That Christ is raised from the dead and he is ascended and he rules in heavenly places. And in chapter 2, he tells you that we have been raised with Christ and are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And in chapter 6, he talks about how our, our walk as Christians, we're in a battle. But our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with things you can see and touch and taste and hear. It's against unseen spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It's that the unseen spiritual realities is what he's saying. These, this is where you have been blessed by the Spirit And all this to say, friends, because they're all yours. He blesses us and we bless him. That's that's the gospel logic. We don't bless him in order to get blessed. We don't praise him in order to be blessed by him. We bless him because he first blessed us. We give thanks to him because we've received from his love and his grace. Our blessing of him is gratitude. His blessing of us is grace. So we do that. We gather together to praise from a thankful heart, Paul says. And then thirdly, he says, who is it that's blessed you here? Verse 3 in particular. 
You've been blessed by God the Father. Christian praise is not only Trinitarian and grateful, but it is Father-focused, he says here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father is the subject of almost every main verb in these verses here. He's the one who blessed us, chose us, destined us, made us sons, freely bestowed grace on us, lavished us with grace, made us to know his will and his purpose. Over and over he's saying, it's the Father who did this for you. He's celebrating that. Listen, when you come to God in prayer, when you come before God in prayer, some of you come and in your heart, you identify God with the positive experience you've had in your own family life because you had a good father. Maybe you had a godly Christian man who, not perfect, loved you, forgave you, taught you, cared for you, provided for you, was there for you. And it's, it's easy in a sense for you to go, my earthly father was good, my heavenly father, how, how much better? My earthly father pales in comparison and yet my heavenly father is like my good earthly father and some however have had bad earthly fathers like Henry Light who wrote the opening hymn of praise that we sang Henry Light was became an Anglican minister of the gospel and he wrote praise my soul the king of heaven it's on the first page of your bulletin but here's his story when he was a young child His dad walked out on the family and left his mom with a couple of small kids. Moved across the country. They were nearly destitute. And when he was real young, his mother died. Through the generosity of others, he was shipped off to some boarding school. He had some positive experiences. His father, however, remarried, had other children, and would write him letters, Dear Henry, and sign them, your uncle. He required that his own son call him uncle and not father. Could you imagine the psychological toll, the emotional toll that that would take? And yet, Henry Light can write lines like, I think it's stanza three, father like he tends and spares us well our feeble frame he knows how can he do that how can he how can he write about god the father with terms that are positive when he had such a wretched home life how could he do it friends the gospel it's the power of god to reshape our view of god because in the gospel we learn that it is the father who loved us he isn't distant he isn't absent He isn't abusive. He isn't negligent. He isn't a passive bystander to whatever it is that Jesus is doing or whatever it is that's going on in your life. Don't ever think of the cross as the effort of Jesus twisting the arm of the Father to get the Father to love you. That's not what's happening at all. The cross isn't Jesus getting the Father to love you. The cross is Jesus going there because the Father loved you and sent His own son for you to the cross. Because the father loved you. He's always loved you. He'll always love you. 
That's what Paul is saying about the Father here. Oh, friends, this is, this is the place where we need to, 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 to learn by the gospel to think of God differently than perhaps we do. And to even begin to find our greatest enjoyment in being wrapped up in the arms of a loving Father. And so you see here that this, this prayer of praise, it's Trinitarian and it's grateful and it's Father-focused, but one final thing, it's, it's Christ-centered. All things the Father gives to us are given how? In Christ Jesus is the expression used some 11 times. In Him, in Christ, all these things are ours. Every blessing is enjoyed in Christ, verse 3. We're chosen in Christ. We're predestined through Jesus. We're lavished with grace in the Beloved, verse 7. And that Beloved is capital B. Who is the Beloved? The Beloved is... The one whom the Father calls beloved. And who does the Father say he loves? It is Jesus the Son who at his baptism comes up out of the water and the voice from heaven speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. Jesus is the beloved. And and the Apostle Paul is saying that you have been united to and brought into union with The one whom the Father calls his beloved. And he cannot see his Son apart from you. And he cannot see you apart from the Son. You are forever in union with Jesus. You can't be more loved than you are. He loves you with the kind of love that he has for his own Son. It's almost too good to be true. Jesus is the channel of these blessings to us. Why why does it have to be this way that we get this kind of blessing in Christ. Why? Well, one simple answer is this. Because we're in no position to deserve them. We're in no position to demand them. And everything we've done with our lives ought to have forfeited them. You get them through being united to Christ. Being joined to Him. Listen, the concept of union with Jesus is in some ways mind-exploding In some ways, it's difficult to get your head wrapped around. In a lot of ways, it takes a lot of us a long time to learn what it actually means to be united to Jesus and then to rest in the meaning of that. If you're a young Christian, you need to learn this. Don't get me wrong. God can help you understand it. I'm just saying, you might be an old Christian and you still don't get it. I understand that. It's, it's hard to get your mind wrapped around the Bible, therefore pictures it in a variety of ways, trying to help us here. Our union with Jesus in the Bible is described as the union of a, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. The two become one, the Bible says, just as Christ becomes one with his church. It's pictured in the union of a vine and its branches. The vine is the source of life for the branches, and apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, but in Jesus, we bear much fruit. It's pictured in the union of a head and a body. The body belongs to the head and the head belongs to the body. We're one organism. And it's pictured as well in this way. It's stated this way. Once we were in Adam, we belonged to the old fallen humanity with Adam as the head of the family. And now we are in Christ. We belong to a new redeemed humanity. With Christ as the head of the family. Imagine it sort of like this. 
imagine two giant wrestlers as tall as Mount Everest. Huge men. And on their belts, they have hooks. And on their belts, one of the men, it says, Adam. And on the belt of the other, it says, Christ. And all mankind is hooked into one of those belts. You are either hooked into Adam, you are in Adam, or you are hooked onto Christ, you are in Christ. And wherever the wrestler Adam wanders, all those go who are united to Adam. And likewise, wherever Christ, the last Adam, wanders, he takes people with him because they're united to him. So ask yourself this question, where did Christ go? Well, Christ went to a little town called Nazareth, and there he obeyed his father and his mother. And the Bible is saying, and in him you obeyed father and mother. In Christ You loved your neighbor as yourself. The thing which Jesus did, but none of us do very well at all. In Christ, we turned the other cheek. We didn't retaliate. We forgave 70 times 7 in Christ. In Christ, we rose from the grave. In Christ, we're seated in the heavenlies. In Christ, we're complete in Christ. All that happened to him has happened to us. Since we're hanging from his belt while he walks through life, death, resurrection, An ascension, it'll make your head explode. But the simple way to look at it is this in in another way. What did Jesus do when he came? He didn't just die on a cross. He lived. And what did he do when he lived? He loved. He loved the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. He fulfilled the law. And you are in Christ. And you have fulfilled the law in Christ. And you get these blessings, the Bible says, In Him. He merits them. And they're yours. They don't come to you because you work hard for Jesus. They don't come to you because you pray hard for them. They don't come to you because you show up at church faithfully. You don't get these blessings because you're good and better than other Christians. You don't get them for any other reason than Christ who won them for you and the Spirit who applies them to you who are in Christ. So our praise is Christ Centered. It's Trinitarian. It's grateful. It's Father focused. And it's Christ centered. And in conclusion, we might ask this question Is there anything in our understanding of God that causes us to like, that causes us to cheer, to praise? Do we think of Him that way? And is there any repentance that needs to happen in our hearts for being reluctant and slow and weak? And cold in our praise. Where would you get any of this understanding of God? And where would you get a repentant heart but from God? You can't conjure it up yourself. You know the name Francis Scott Key, don't you? He wrote the Star-Spangled Banner. He also wrote a wonderful hymn called, Lord, with glowing heart, I'd praise Thee. I, I would praise Thee for the bliss Thy love bestows. For the pardoning grace that saves me and the peace that from it flows. I I want to praise you for all that. Help, O God, my weak endeavor. This dull soul 
to rapture raise. Thou must light the flame, or never can my love be warmed to praise. We've got to get it from God. When you get it from God, friends, it will reorient your life. Praise will ease your anxiety and move you out of the centerpiece of your life. Praise will decentralize you and put God where God belongs. There's a wonderful story told, and we'll close with this. There's a fascinating little bit of world history here about on Midsummer uh, Day 1314. Some of you know that the, some of the history behind this. The greatest battle fought in Scottish history fought outside of a little town called Stirling. It's called the Battle of Bannockburn. It was a battle in which independence was won from England by Scotland. And the king of Scotland was a man named Robert the Bruce. And the English had assembled under Edward II with the largest army ever assembled in the British Isles. And it marched north and camped, waiting to fight. And the Scottish army had never fought an English army in pitched battle. And you can imagine the nerves and the anxieties of the men as they camped there the day before the battle. And they anticipated this force that they were outnumbered by two to one. And on the day of the battle, on a small highland pony, so small it said that Robert the Bruce was just a foot or so off the ground. He's out there surveying his troops on this little highland pony and suddenly an English knight from across the field spots him and comes charging across the field in full knight uniform with his his lance out on a great giant war horse and he lowers the lance at Robert the Bruce while, while Bruce's men are screaming for him to get back to the lines and Robert the Bruce doesn't. He turns towards the man He reels on his little pony. He's not wearing any armor. He's just got one instrument, a battle axe with him. And this knight comes charging at him to drop him. And just as he arrives, Bruce steps two feet out of the way, takes his battle axe, swings it at the head of the guy, and cloves his helmet and head in half. And the Scottish army went nuts. I mean, you can imagine. It's like better than any movie scene or any sports event you've ever seen in terms of the sheer release of anxiety and thrill of victory. And Robert the Bruce comes back and um, they're his you know, comrades in arms, their generals are castigating him for taking this risk. And all he can say is, I broke my best axe. But the guy who, one of the guys who chronicles Bruce's life tells us that in the camp that night, instead of focusing on their fears of facing a great army, all the men of Scotland, all they could say was, now, that's a king worth dying for. That's a king we can follow anywhere. And suddenly, all their concerns were decentralized. All their focus was off of themselves and turned to focus on the greatness of the king that they were following. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a far greater king than Robert the Bruce. And our king has won a far more important battle in single-handed combat, one-on-one against the enemy of our souls. And he has won that battle 
so that the focus could be taken off of us and the stress of it and laid on the shoulders of the king who is competent to handle it. And then we find this amazing thing that in delighting in his victory, we're free. We're free to delight, free to have joy, free to serve because our hearts praise him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven.